Good morning, Sun Valley Church, and welcome back to The Voice of the Valley. I am Jeremy Pinch, and as you are well aware, we started the Advent season yesterday, or this last Sunday, and uh, as we look to Uh, the coming of Christ in this season, we wanted to take time in this podcast uh, to do the same. We want to take this time to look at different aspects of the birth of Christ, Um, things like the Old Testament promises of Christ, looking at the lineage of Christ, looking at uh, the people who showed up at the birth of Christ, uh, the hypostatic union, all these different aspects that make up the birth of Christ. And so I'm excited for these next four weeks to uh, make our way through uh, these different topics. And today I have a special guest with me. He is the professor of Old Testament at the Master's Seminary, and I've sat through numerous courses of his at the Master's University, uh, and I've been greatly encouraged by every single one of his courses. He uh, has opened my eyes to uh, some key uh, aspects of the Old Testament. So often when I've read through the Old Testament, it's it's seeing how fast I can read through it to get to the New Testament. But when we take the time to step back, to dig deeper, and look into what is going on uh, throughout the Old Testament, it is it opens up a whole new world of, of the faithfulness of God, His goodness and mercy to the nation of Israel. And so I'm so glad that Dr. Michael Grisanti has uh, taken the time to take this phone call and speak to us about the promises or the promised one. So, Dr. Grisanti, thank you so much for joining me this morning. It's my blessing. Uh, Dr. Grisanti, would you you mind taking a few moments to tell us a little bit about yourself um, and how you became a professor at the Master's Seminary and University? Well, I grew up in uh, out east, western part of the state of New York in a little village of about 950 people in a Christian home. Uh, Came to Christ. Uh, wasn't perfect for sure. Uh, felt called to serve the Lord full time as I was growing up. God was patient with me along the way and went to Bible college and then um, seminary. And I really thought God wanted me overseas to preach Christ where He wasn't preached and was heading in that direction. And almost didn't go to seminary, but felt like I. As I took a year off, my wife was a year younger than me. We were married then. But uh, in that year of working and filling in pulpits and teaching in Sunday school, I realized that I didn't have the foundation I wanted to have for a lifetime of ministry and the hunger in my heart grew to learn more. So I I went on, and uh, in that process still was totally focused on mission field. And when I graduated from seminary in my testimony, I said, I feel that God is leading me to be a, a pastor, a missionary, or a teacher. I wasn't sure. And even though missions was what I thought I would end up with, and the Lord seemed to, through various things, circumstances, counsel, opportunities, uh, he, he had changed my heart a bit to going overseas to be involved in uh, leadership training instead of church planting. And then and then it was eventually as I had the opportunity to train guys here in the States to multiply my lives, my life in, in their lives. And so I 
since then, and I, I don't feel like I was running from something. I think it was God's hand on me. I, I taught in, I don't know, 15 to 20 countries and training centers. And it's my burden to be a help to our brethren uh, as they go there. And if, things, if they can do the through native speaker, don't ask me. If there are things they need that they don't have someone for, I'll go ahead and speak through the interrupter, you know, the interpreter. Anyway, so God, that, that's how kind of, in the process of all that happening, I was a prof. I, I was going to a school in the Midwest and where a seminary was housed in the church and was on the pastoral staff of the church and transitioned to be a, a seminary prof uh, because of a need there. And then God just kind of seemed to push me more in that direction. And then I eventually, after I went to Dallas for my doctorate and came back and taught for six years, masters approached me and we weighed that and uh, moved out here in 97 and have been teaching here ever since. So I had involved in a small way at the Masters University in uh, some online courses. I did something in the degree completion program, talking to students live for a few years and then transitioned to what I do now on the side for TMU. My full-time commitment is here at TMS as a, an Old Testament prof. I also would say I just toss out there, just so you know, I I love geography in Israel. We're going to talk about history a little bit, and uh, so I, I lead Israel trips with regularity in um, as part of what I do. Yeah, you recently just uh, got back from Israel, didn't you? Right, right. Late September I returned, and I go in March, and then in May, June. Okay, okay. So what uh, what specifically drew you to to the nation of Israel, specifically ancient Israel? Yeah, well, I've always, uh, as far as back as I can remember, history would have been my favorite subject. And then geography was always a strong interest of mine. And then as I took courses in Bible college and seminary, uh, whether it was Old Testament survey or history of ancient Israel course, it was just um, just exciting. I just really got wrapped up in that. And then as I had the opportunity in in a Bible institute, our church hosted back in the Midwest, and then seminary level history of Israel courses, it was just something that uh, was, was a, a strong interest of mine. I, I have interests in my, my doctoral work and whatever in, in prophets, and I've done a lot of work there, but history of Israel is just one of my high loves because of the way it kind of helps us not just uh, have information, but history is not just dry, dusty facts. It's it's seeing the hand of God at work in human history for his glory and his grace and mercy as he deals with hard-headed, unsaved, rebellious Israelites that we can resonate with, right? So there's something about the character of God on, on kind of vivid display, and um, we kind of see things of his intentions that help us understand a larger message of the scriptures. So as we... As we look at the Old Testament, it, it's easy for us, especially in today's progressive church, to um, look at it as the Old Testament as archaic. Um, it, it's basically just there so we can get to the New Testament. But why is why is the Old Testament so important for us today? Yeah, it, it's not the irrelevant testament. <laughs> it's the if you will the first testament. Sometimes the term old makes it sound like outdated, who cares? I want to be a new. And, and I, I, well, I would say, and I say this to myself as well, that uh, it's part of the Bible. 
you know, the whole word of God. And so it's part of God's intentionality. So there must be something important there if God saw fit to give it through prophetic individuals and have it passed along in an amazing way for the benefit of each generation to follow, that there must be something there for God to have brought it into being and then to brought it into our hands. And I'd say, first of all, keep reminding yourselves as part of the whole counsel of God to so don't ditch part of that. Two, I would say it's kind of foundational for understanding God's program his plan for uh, his creation, ultimately. So, and this is where there's going to be a difference in perspective along the way, but I, I would say it's, it's the Old Testament that lays the foundation and establishes categories that are picked up and through progressive revelation are further developed in the New Testament. But, but the things that are defined in the Old Testament are foundational to that growing a development, the progressive revelation. There, there's a, a widespread understanding in, in evangelical churches today where the New Testament is what defines what God intended and at times reinterpreting what's found in the Old Testament. And so the New Testament can redefine Israel as the church, or it can, it can redefine this concept as that. It can take circumcision in the old and make it into baptism in the new. We have to be careful of that, but that, that's a whole other subject. So I think the Old Testament is important to see the initial presentation of what God's plan is, and sometimes repeatedly. Uh, there's a whole other subject there to talk about future and you know a millennium and all of that. And just if you read if you read the prophets, there's a certain presentation that happens repeatedly where the end of the story it's not just one passage. The end of the story results in the Lord ruling over all the world through His anointed one concretely. So it's important for that reason, too. A, three, uh, a third reason, and I could say lots more, but when we think about images, concepts in the New Testament, whether we realize it or not, the Old Testament helps us grasp those concepts better. Think about redemption. Right, so we, we think of redemption, understandably, default to uh, it, it's a great truth that the, the, the individual you know, embracing of salvation, he redeems us through the death and burial resurrection of Christ on our behalf to provide us the theological basis for our forgiveness. But, you know, in the Old Testament, when you have redeemed used, it's the intervention of God in human history at a, a national level to, to extricate a people out of a humanly hopeless circumstance, he redeems them. And so my understanding of redemption, as beautiful as it is in individual salvation, is, is enriched by seeing that concrete Old Testament place where redemption happened, the idea of being a witness. And you have Israel called a witness nation. You have the idea of holiness in the New Testament for understandable reasons, and I'm totally, this is important to think about holiness as being separate from sin, being morally pure, totally important. I'm not minimizing that at all, but in the Old Testament, holiness involved also separation from what was common or ordinary, living consecrated, extraordinary lives. So be holy as I am holy, He's saying, we ought to just be uh, content with living the American dream. It's, how do I live an unparalleled life that's with lifting up God's name in vivid ways? How do I live a life that has eternal significance? It's, how do I live a life that's out of the ordinary? And I'm not saying you just comb your hair weird and, you know, paint your face and walk, walk backwards or whatever. It's, it's, how do I live a life that's extraordinary in the sense of God's definition? And sometimes I think we don't think about that when it would be holy. Well, the Old Testament helps us see. That's part of what it means. So I'd, I'd say the Old Testament helps enrich 
our understanding of lots of concepts that enable us to better live like God that God's called us to live. Mm. So as we've entered into this Advent season, we commonly go back to the Old Testament and we read from the prophets about this coming one, uh, one who would redeem, the one who would restore. Um, but what is, what is the earliest anticipation of Christ in the Old Testament, and why, why is the placement so significant? Yeah, now, not everyone's agreed on this in some ways, but I, I would go back to Genesis 3.15. You know, and, and it just—I I think it's—it um, is a forward-looking passage. It's kind of vague. It becomes clearer what it's talking about explicitly as time goes by. So nobody in, in, in the time of Moses, when he wrote Genesis, or Adam and Eve, who heard this from the word of the mouth of God, thought Jesus, right? I mean, I'm not suggesting that. But when it says he's talking to the to the the curse on the on the serpent. And he talks about putting hostility between you and the woman, your seed, her seed, all the humanity, and then the, the forces of, of the evil one, and all those that would pursue his agenda. And then the, the Lord singles out a he, referring to the seed of the woman, he will strike your head, and you, your, you and your emissaries, your, will, will strike his heel. And, and the point here is there's a, there's a he that's introduced that's going to, do mortal damage to the forces of Satan that's going to really be part of this resolution of the sin problem that's introduced in chapter 3. And so from this point on, you have people who are reading Scripture, who are living in Scripture, and, and they who's the he? Is it, is, it, is it Seth, the one that's born after Cain kills Abel? Is it Noah? Is it Abraham? You get further on to the kings of, of Israel. Is it this guy? Is it this guy? And it's no, uh, no, uh, no. And, and there's a growth in this messianic expectation that kind of paves the way for a few people to recognize what's going on when Jesus was born, and then through his life and ministry, scores more grasping. This is when when uh, Jesus is referred to as the son of David, people are getting it. Right? This is the one that goes back as far as Genesis 3.15, before the son of David thing was introduced. So that's where I think it starts with, there's a he. God is going to provide, is going to bring resolution to the sin problem and uh, the ultimate demise of the forces of Satan. Yeah, that, that's where I'd start. Okay. And so is there, is there you, you t- mentioned this idea of progressive revelation throughout this Old Testament. Is that, is that image being shaped throughout the Old Testament as we make our way into yeah, the New? totally. I would say that he is, you know, who's, who's that going to be? And then you have, you know, uh, later on you have Genesis 49. It's going to be the scepter will not depart out of Judah, so it's kind of narrowed. And then Numbers, um, in, in the latter part of Numbers, with the prophecy, the, the announcements of Balaam, it's going to be, again, this scepter, this uh, one who's going to rule and even subjugate those who oppose God's intentions. And so you have... You have this, this narrowing thing, you have a Davidic covenant that's going to be a descendant of David. I'd say that the, 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 the book of Isaiah was a massive step forward, both in some head-scratching ways and other powerful ways. When it's head-scratching, there are certain things the folks in Isaiah's day wouldn't have totally understood, like when the Lord through Isaiah says, 
this one in, in chapter nine, mighty God. What in the world? I mean, the only keys that people know on earth up to that point is a human. So I mean, there's a head scratcher. The whole Isaiah 53, this one, this suffering servant is going to die bearing the sins of his people. And, and so those are head scratchers that I think are part of the narrowing that, you know, there isn't clarity. And even the, the apostles at the end of their ministry, when Jesus kind of introduces to them this uh, way of suffering, the Via Dolorosa, and starts with Caesarea Philippi, Mark 9, Matthew 16, and, and, and the idea of him suffering and dying, Peter says, over my dead body. You know, and, and they don't get it totally. And that, that's part of the challenge is there's, there's a progressive revelation that's adding to that picture that's being depicted of this coming Jesus that um, finds initial culmination at the death and burial resurrection of Christ. And I think the second coming kind of wraps that up even more. So you, you mentioned... Um... Isaiah, and we know that there's several promises in in the book of Isaiah of this one that would come. Um, But these prophets, some of them are writing um, before they're about to be deported. Um, Some of them are writing during their deportation. Some are writing after they've gotten back from deportation. is there a significance to this time frame in which these prophecies of Christ are written? So as, yeah. as you just mentioned for Isaiah, is there, is there a significance in the time frame that he's writing and they're looking at this one that would come? Yeah, I think so. There's lots of things to say here, but I, the irreducible minimum would be, would be that God has demonstrated to them that deliverance would follow judgment that when it comes to God's dealing with his people with whom he has a, a relationship that's resting in his character alone, it's a unilateral promise he made with all these promissory covenants, you know, Abrahamic and Noahic, Davidic and New, where it's only in God they, they find their fulfillment. It's only, he rests on his shoulders. He's, he's wanted them to know that when it comes to the relationship with the people to whom he committed himself based on his character, Judgment is not the end of the story. It's part of an understandable expression of the wrath of God in, in light of Israel's penchant to sin and rebel and refuse to embrace the calling he's given them. But judgment is meant to be redemptive in the sense that it's a refining, to be a refining experience. And even though there's a passage of hundreds of years, the Lord's ultimate goal is to bring them to himself, to see them redeemed at, at, at a massive level. Uh, for how many of them all Israel is saved is like in the end, after the end of the tribulation, there'll be so many are saved. It's like the nation is saved. And what God is doing here is he wants them to realize that, that he has a plan that he will bring to pass. And so it's encouraging to know the folks that are being deported. I mean, the ones that are in the dark who are rebellious, who are hard hearted, you don't have a clue. In those judgments, there there were godly people who were kind of carried along or chewed up and spit out, or you know they experienced the ravages of siege and and and, and exile and all of those challenges. The, the good news they could grasp is that even though yeah God they understand how God could needed to punish sin for His glory, He couldn't just embrace this 
horrible hypocrisy that characterized God's people, a majority of them. It was good to know that in the midst of that reality, that, that, that this was not the end of the story, even though they may not see it personally in their lifetime. They may live and die without seeing the culmination of that. This is, this is an encouragement that this is a God who keeps his promises and brings to pass what he says he'll do. I kind of liken it to the folks who we, many of us, uh, especially younger ones in our, in our day, don't remember this at all. But there were, there were people who from you know, 1920s through 1980s were under the thumb of the Iron Curtain. And uh, oppression and persecution and harassment and, and challenge and difficulty and and the thing that was one of the greatest hopes was the promise of the return of Christ because that was something that was assured even in the midst of what seemed like zero hope humanly right so I I'd say that in the deportation setting God wants to demonstrate to those people who are believers those who might think about it afterwards but to us later on the judgment of the, of the nation of Israel described in all those prophetic passages is not the end of God's story. There's a, there's a the trajectory of God's program as defined in the old Testament and, and, and confirmed in the new is that God is going to send his son back again. Who's going to come and devastate the forces of Satan under the antichrist. And he's going to establish his kingdom over the entire world, and part of that will involve the fact that he's going to all Israel will be saved. There's going to be this massive turning to Christ, looking at whom they have pierced at the end of that tribulation. And he's going to bring a redeemed firstborn, a redeemed people of Israel in the land of promise as part of not as the ultimate issue, but as part of that kingdom he establishes over the whole world. So I think that's part of the good news. Yeah. Yeah. Of those predictions in the context of deportation. Yeah. Amen. Wow. Yeah. Well, I th- I think you answered these next two questions, so I'll just move to uh, to this last one here. How can we go about finding Jesus in the Old Testament in a unhelpful way? Yeah, the first thing is I'd say we need about basic hermeneutics or how do you interpret the Bible. Uh, context is always important, right? So you want to understand the context of a statement and what's the point emphasized in light of that context. And so what, what we what, what there is there's a movement afoot and it's pretty pretty widespread in evangelicalism. They call it Christocentric interpretation, where if you if you you have to for you to handle an Old Testament passage well. You must find in that passage some key Christological truth that's based in that passage, or you've wasted your time. And so, like First Samuel 17, in, in that approach, is about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Oh, wait a minute. When you read First Samuel 17, which is a story of David and Goliath, where is Jesus and our sin made clear? Uh, you you could argue theologically through threads of preparation, and you know Goliath is a bad guy, kind of nemesis of God's people, and David is the one who's who is going to be the one that has a covenant made with him in Second Samuel seven, and it's going to be a Davidic uh, ruler on the throne. But my my point would be is what what is First Samuel seventeen about? It's 
it's not about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins as, as the primary point in, in the Old Testament. So I, I think there's something there to learn about theology proper. And part of the problem is, is what we do is we have to find Jesus everywhere, is that we miss uh, the fully orbed development of the Old Testament of all aspects of theology, if you will, a, a more robust view of who God is. And, and uh, yes, uh, the promise anointed one and, and his, his sovereignty over creation and other things that are part of that message. So in my mind, uh, like First Samuel 17, I, I think it's a, a great passage to demonstrate that God is the one who makes the difference, that God is the one who keeps his promise, that a theocentric focus is essential. Um, that's what David had, as opposed to Saul's kind of practical atheistic perspective. And so I think there's something about theology proper we miss. So I think what we have to be careful of, as much as I think it's legitimate to trace Christ through the Old Testament leading up to the New, I mean, you're in my Isaiah class, right, Jeremy? Yep, yep. You know the chance to play with us at the end of the course. <laughs> um, and so uh, it just is, I think it's important to think about the way the Old Testament paves the way for the coming of Christ. It doesn't, it doesn't, Christology is not the only aspect of theology that's important in the Bible and in the Old Testament. And so there's God the Father, God the Spirit, I think there's things to learn about God dealing broadly with both uh, redeemed humanity and, and, and unsaved humanity. And, you know, just there's various truths that are in the Old Testament that I'm going to bulldoze as a result of ignoring the context uh, is short-circuiting, if you will, or short-shifting, short-shifting the, the message that God put in the Old Testament for us that gives us a more full preparation. There's something as important as Christ is. I mean, I used to, 20, 30 years ago, if you asked me, is the Old Testament Christocentric, I could have said yes. But because that term has been hijacked in my mind to mean this, finding a key Christological truth in every passage, I'm wasting my time. And then in my mind, doing eisegesis, putting truth into the text that's not there, rather than exegesis, bringing meaning out of the text that's there, I call it Christotelic, which means that the end of, the culmination of, the Bible focuses on the work of Christ. First coming, provide the theological foundation for our salvation. Second coming, to uh, defeat the forces of the Antichrist and establish this kingdom predicted in multiple prophets. That is what would demonstrate God bringing to pass in human history what he promised to do. Anyway, so I would just want to say, I, I think uh, this, realization that Christ is the crescendo, the culmination of God's plan is totally appropriate, but it isn't without definition of things in the Old Testament, which includes a kingdom on earth over which Christ will rule for his glory. That's part of that culmination. And what happens in the Christocentric approach is this Christologizing of all these passages is kind of the hermeneutical basis for saying that all that the trajectory of, of that God intends finds fulfillment in the first coming of Christ, and and then in the the people of God that are formed. So Israel nation, millennium, all that's out the window, because it's been kind of reinterpreted. It's typologically morphed into this church, people of God scenario. And I think we're losing 
for me as an Old Testament guy, it's like a stab to my heart because I think we're just uh, throwing a bunch of those passages, scores of them under the carpet. So that's that's a, a dangerous thing in my mind. Mm. Yeah, well, that's gives us a lot to to think about and how we how we uh, approach the Old Testament. I want to I want to ask you one final question, and this is this is a uh, personal question for you. Um, what is one passage during the Advent season that just brings you so much joy, uh, especially in, in, in the Old Testament? Is there an Old Testament passage that you just read over and over again that's just brings you comfort and joy and, and hope, I guess? Yeah, there, there'd be a, a handful of them, of course. I, um, I, I guess I would... Again, there's three or four I would put out there right away. I, you know, I'd want to say I have 53 and mm-hmm. what it says about what this suffered servant's going to do. But I, I guess I would go to Isaiah 9, 6, 9, 5, and 6, which talks about this whole phase one that pointing to phase two in one passage that there's this, that God bringing to pass his promise. It involves the unto us the son is given, unto us a child is born. Mm-hmm. This is this is this is the culmination of this is the he of Genesis three. This is this is the one it's referring to in all those passages that defines culmination in the gospels. And it's a redemptive and a kingdom focus. Mm-hmm. Encouraging to me just to each day to remind myself that that I'm I'm in an eternal relationship with an awesome God who brings to pass his promises. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a reminder of that pointing to that. That's going to be find actual fulfillment phase one in the New Testament, phase two yet to come. That um, helps me see this awesome God as one who brings his promises to pass, who's totally reliable, totally faithful. That should motivate me to live a life for his glory. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Well, Dr. Grisanti, uh, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day again to speak with us and, and share your wisdom on on the Old Testament. It's truly been an honor uh, to speak with you over the phone to discuss this this subject. Well, Lord bless you folks, the life and ministry there. I'm grateful for lighthouses in various parts of the country and the world that want to honor God's name and want to bring the word to bear and see folks come to Christ and grow in Christ. Mm. Local church is a core value of mine. And so I'm grateful for folks like you and your senior pastor and others who are committed to life and ministry there Yeah, yeah. and trying to impact the, the vineyard God put you in as well as four uh, corners of the world. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. We appreciate that. We appreciate that. God bless you. Well, church, we love you. We look forward to being with you uh, this coming Sunday and next week on The Voice of the Valley. Have a great day.